my sermon for this morning is putting on an act. Putting on an act, we're looking at Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 54. I just read it a few minutes back. In recent weeks, we've been considering the response of a crowd of people when the Lord Jesus Christ cast out an evil spirit from someone. The onlookers were amazed and wondered if Jesus is the son of David, that is, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Christ. However, there were others who can be seen in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel to have been scribes and Pharisees. We get that information in those two Gospels. And they accused Jesus of casting out the demon by the power of the devil. That spoke... That spoke volumes about them, even though those religious leaders may have had an outward show of being men of God. In reality, they were spiritually blind. They dared to put the Son of God in league with the evil one, with the devil. The word to describe those men is hypocrites. Jesus calls them precisely that in Luke 11 chapter 44, Luke chapter 11, verse 44. Look at that, verse 44. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're probably familiar with the word hypocrite, and you'll know that it describes people who are pretenders. They're not sincere. They don't practice what they preach. Hypocrite actually means actor or stage player, which is precisely what those men were. They were actors and the world was their stage. As they fasted for everyone to see, for the crowd to watch them fasting with their contorted faces, prayed these long fancy prayers, for the praise of men, like actors uh, in a theatre. They gave alms as a big act. They didn't care about the people that they gave alms to, they gave charity to. It was all a big show. Remember that they were the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, yet still they rejected the Son of God. There were some notable exceptions, of course. There was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee who came to Jesus by night, saying, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. He came to Jesus asking questions. He'd been watching Jesus. He wanted to know more. Jesus spoke to him about being born again. That same man, Nicodemus, went on to assist with the burial of the crucified Saviour. And for all we know, perhaps, I don't know this to be the case, perhaps one or more of those hypocrites that were in the house that Jesus was invited to dine in were also later on united to Christ by faith. Also, let's not forget the Apostle Paul, 
He was the most prolific writer of New Testament scripture. However, before his conversion, he was a Pharisee who wreaked havoc on the early church. He breathed out murderings. They feared him in the church, and yet he went on to become a Christian by the grace of God, and he was called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. From Pharisee to apostle. It was seen last week that the Lord Jesus Christ described not just the scribes and Pharisees, but that entire generation of Jews as evil And that evil was seen in their hypocritical observance of the law and layer upon layer of traditions, the traditions of men, whilst at the same time they rejected the Messiah and ultimately they crucified him. Can you see that that kind of hypocrisy is still happening in our day and age? For example, the Jews of today, they observe the Passover whilst at the same time they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Old Testament Passover feast pointed to. Jesus is our Passover, says the Apostle Paul. It's not just the Jews, it's Muslims, Hindus, and anyone else for that matter, who has religion, but who does not know Jesus as the God of his or her salvation. It's an act. Anyone who has religion but doesn't have Jesus is a hypocrite. Generally, religious hypocrites with unchanged hearts are left to do nothing but be hypocrites. What else can they do? Their religion can only ever be a show that is absent of any spiritual reality. There's nothing there. Their religious observances and law-keeping are purely external and proceed from hearts that are blind, that are hardened. They have hearts in which Jesus most certainly does not dwell by faith. Coming to our passage, first of all, what can be seen is Jesus being invited by a Pharisee to dine with him. Look again at Luke chapter 11 verses 37 and 38 and as he spake a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him and he went in and sat down to meet and when the Pharisee saw it he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner Jesus and his host were not alone for example look at verse 53 Verse 53, and as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things because they wanted an excuse to to accuse him of something. But we see there, it wasn't just the host, there were the other Pharisees or other Pharisees and also scribes in that house. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ, that the host and all the other scribes and Pharisees sat down to eat the meal, but it did not escape the host's attention that Jesus had not washed his hands. And he marvelled. 
Apparently the Pharisees would immerse their hands in water right up to their elbows, which is not a bad thing as far as hygiene considerations go. After all, they didn't use knives and forks back then and their hands reached into dishes of food that were set out on the table. Good idea to wash their hands. Even now, people in India, they use ten chopsticks when they eat a meal. Those ten chopsticks are their fingers. But as one might expect, they wash their hands first. However, what we have in our passage was not about hygiene. It was about the refusal of Jesus to observe the commandments of men. As is explained in Mark's Gospel, chapter 7 and verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands often, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. It was all about the tradition of the elders. For all we know, ordinarily Jesus may well have washed his hands before eating meals. I'm guessing he probably did. But what he did on this occasion was to purposefully leave his hands unwashed, which no doubt he knew, even before he accepted the invitation to dine in that house, would be met with surprise and with indignation. He knew that that was going to happen. What would follow would be a time for Jesus to expose to his host and to all the other guests the emptiness of their religion. A religion that majored on the observance of man-made traditions by people who dishonoured God by virtue of the fact that they dishonoured the Son whom God had sent into the world. In other words, it will be a time of exposing their hypocrisy And who knows, by the grace of God, those divine words of rebuke that that we have in Luke chapter 11 may well have induced repentance in at least some of them. We don't know. Secondly, we'll look at a home truth that the scribes and Pharisees heard from Jesus. Look at verses 39 to 41. And the Lord said unto him, to the host, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, All things are clean unto you. Making everything nice and clean on the outside to the neglect of the inside is very descriptive of those men. As Jesus said to them in Matthew's Gospel, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Again, they look religious, very godly, on the outside, but inside, full of wickedness. 
The thing is that God looks at the heart and not at the outward appearance. As such, Jesus said those harsh words to the scribes and Pharisees, whom he called fools, to emphasise the value that God, who made man with a body and soul, places on spiritual purity. God is looking for spiritual purity. Jesus most certainly did not hold back or pull his punches when he called them fools. But he did so as one who knew the thoughts and the intents of their wicked hearts and he was able to see that their minds were without sense. Their minds were without sense. In other words, they were sinfully mad. And that is an apt description of anyone in the world who rejects Jesus. They're sinfully mad. Maybe that's someone in here. The New Testament commentator, William Hendrick, had something interesting to say about verse 40. He said, Whether as an English equivalent we prefer you fools or you foolish ones, either way would a modern audience approve of being addressed in this manner. Do people like being called fools? (laughs) We should remember, however, that Christ's all-seeing eyes were able to do what today's ministers cannot do. Those eyes were able to penetrate to the very depths of human hearts. Accordingly, the passage cannot mean that any clergyman now has the right to call the members of his congregation fools. I have done, haven't I, really? But I have done. I've qualified the statement, though. I've said that if you reject Christ, you're a fool. And I'll stand by that. On the other hand, it is also true that there are times when a faithful minister will have to use language that is not exactly complimentary. The result? The following summarises what actually happened in the case of a pastor who was bidding farewell to his congregation. A certain lady shook his hand very firmly and with tear-filled eyes remarked, No minister has ever hurt me as much as you did. Thanks be to God, I needed it. (laughs) When you consider what Jesus said to those scribes and those Pharisees and what Hendrickson said in his commentary... Fallible pastors like me ought to be careful not to needlessly and recklessly call people fools, but that, that, but that does not mean to say that ministers should simply tickle ears with smooth words. I'm not here to be a motivational speaker. I'm rubbish at it anyway. As the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick, that's the living, and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. The word of God is what matters. And any exhortation or even rebuke must be biblical. 
In verse 41, are we to imagine that Jesus was simply telling those hypocrites that they ought to be charitable to the needy? Let's have a look at it again. Verse 41. Rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. So that's it. Give alms to the needy. Those who need, give them whatever it is they need. Food, whatever. If that was it, then the Sikhs, who provide free meals to anyone who comes into Europe's largest Sikh temple, which of course is in London, have fulfilled what Jesus said in verse 41. You can go there to that Sikh temple any day of the week. You don't have to be a Sikh. Go in there and you'll get a meal free. So is that it? Have those Sikhs fulfilled what Jesus said in verse 41, despite them not being savingly united by faith to Jesus, having absolutely no interest in his finished work of redemption for helpless and hopeless sinners? As for the Pharisees, although they put on a big religious show for the people, for example, in verse 43, Jesus said to them, Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. They were nevertheless mean and uncharitable towards other peoples. Those, those, those Pharisees and, and um, scribes, they didn't give like the, the Sikhs at the Sikh temple in London. It was all about showing off how pious, how, how religious they were, or they thought themselves to be. And that's patently obvious that they didn't actually care about people, the scribes and the Pharisees. It's obvious when you consider their hostile response. Every time Jesus delivered some poor soul from his physical affliction, how was that met by the scribes and Pharisees? They moaned, they complained because Jesus did it on a Sabbath day. They didn't rejoice that the person had been delivered from his or her affliction. They weren't interested in any of that stuff. There was no love or compassion in them at all. And Jesus, he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 41, when he says, but rather give alms of such things as ye have. Behold, all things are clean unto you. He wasn't simply telling the Pharisees to give whatever was in the cups and platters, but rather he was telling them to give that which was in them. To give what was in them. That becomes apparent when you appreciate that where Jesus said, give arms of such things as ye have, a more literal translation of the Greek would be, give arms of all that is within you. Again, Jesus was getting to the heart of the matter. He wasn't simply telling them, go out and and give food to to the needy. That's not a bad thing to do, by the way. But Jesus gets to the heart of it. The problem for those religious Jews is that Jesus had just told them what was in them. He just said that they were full of ravening and wickedness. Full of ravening 
That's what was inside those men. They were full of ravening and wickedness. And then Jesus says, give alms of such things that as ye have, or that is within you. You who are full of ravening and wickedness. Bit of a problem, isn't it? Bit of a problem when you've got a wicked heart to give all that is within you. By way of application, the Lord Jesus Christ continued to expose the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and also the scribes in the verses that follow. For example, in verse 42, Jesus pointed out that the Pharisees tithed various herbs that the Lord didn't even require them to do. They went above and beyond what the Lord required whilst at the same time they neglected the far weightier matters of God's law, such as justice and love, the love of God. That's not really surprising when you consider that they were full of ravening and wickedness. Acts of love and compassion from the scribes and Pharisees towards others was woefully absent And even if they had made the effort to give alms and administer justice, those works would nevertheless have proceeded from the hearts of people who were full of ravening and wickedness, with the greatest wickedness of all being the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be every bit the hypocrite that those religious Jews were if you are not a repentant sinner, Trusting in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All your righteous works, such as coming to church, putting money in the offering box, being nice, being smiley towards other people, when you're in the right mood, of course, and not being in a bad mood, giving food to people, helping them out financially, whatever. It's all filthy rags as far as God is concerned. If you're not trusting in Jesus, if you reject Jesus as your saviour from sin. And you need to repent. You can do all sorts of nice, wonderful things in Jesus' name and still be damned by him when he comes again in judgment. Um, hang on a minute I don't think you need to keep your finger in Luke's gospel I'd like you to turn to Matthew turn back a couple of books to Matthew Let me just repeat what I said. You can do all sorts of nice and wonderful things in Jesus' name. So you're not, you're not going around saying, ah, I don't believe in Jesus. You're not actually saying that. But even so, you can do all sorts of wonderful things in His name, still be damned by Him when He comes again in judgment. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will 
of my Father which is in heaven. It's not even Lord once. Lord, Lord, really making a big deal of it here. You know, you think, Lord, aren't I doing the right things here? It's not. It's Lord, Lord. And so, Lord, Lord, shall... Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity." I can't imagine anything more sobering than hearing Jesus say, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, ye that work wickedness. It ought to send shivers down your spine if you're not trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin. Nothing more sobering in the whole Bible than those words. Jesus at the second at his second coming, saying, I never knew you. Can you see that knowing the will of the Father who is in heaven is the most important thing for anybody to know? You in here, most uh, those um, scribes and Pharisees of old, anybody throughout all generations, the most important thing is to know the will of of God. Otherwise, you're going to have Jesus saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of wickedness. So, what is the most important thing that you need to know? What is the will of the Father who is in heaven? Jesus tells us what the Father's will is in John chapter 6 and verse 40. It's not a secret, this. Jesus tells us plainly in John 6, verse 40, he says, This is the will of him that sent me. In other words, this is the will of God, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's it. End of it. It's about Seeing and believing the Lord Jesus Christ. They amount to the same thing. Believing in the Lord Jesus. That is the most important thing that you will ever do. Nothing else matters in comparison. To all of you who believe on, in the Son of God and who therefore have a heart in which he dwells by faith that will inevitably proceed from you what will what will proceed from you rather is if you believe in Jesus, if you're someone who's seen him, you believe in him, he dwells in your heart by faith and you have the God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Why? Because you are a new creature in Christ. You're in Christ. That is your position. You're someone who is clothed in Jesus. And what will inevitably proceed from you are good works that your Heavenly Father has prepared beforehand for you to do. But again, let me just tell you that the will of God 
is to see Jesus and to believe on him. And then, not a day will go by without you recognising that any good works that proceed from you, you are still a sinner saved by grace. You will know that. You'll recognise that, dear Christian. And that you are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved you and who gave himself for you. Not a day will go by without you recognising that anything and everything that you have ever done, which may be seen to be good works of some sort, giving alms, whatever it is you do, before you became a Christian and even after becoming a Christian, count for precisely nothing towards your salvation from sin. Nothing whatsoever. That your acceptance before God is and always will be in Jesus who has accomplished everything that was required for your eternal salvation and he has done so by his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen. Psalm 9 in the metrical Psalms, please. Turn to Psalm 9. Right. It's tucked in the middle of the Psalm, so we're going to start at verse 7 and finish at verse 15. 7 through to 15 in Psalm 9. Again, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. <laughs>